0: Ah, there we are. All right. Uh, I wasn't allowed to unmute for a minute. I believe that Ben, Greg, is supposed to read scripture for me first. Is that right? No? Where is Ben? I'm here. I'm ready. Awesome. Ben, would you read for us, please?
1: Nice. So this is Hebrews 10, uh, 19 to 31, uh, and it goes, Therefore, brothers...
0: Well, thanks very much, Ben, for that reading. Um, (laughs) I feel like I should mention that when Jim and I spoke about this passage earlier this week and we talked about possible readers, I I consciously chose not to have a Scots reader for this passage because I thought it might trigger some PTSD for people um, reflecting on the fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I just thought that might uh, terrify. and we've got some difficult bits in this passage, um, not necessarily difficult because confusing bits, but difficult because uncomfortable bits. Um, when I was a student growing up in America, we had as part of our sign reading, Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, and we read sections of this and thought, oh my, how horrible those people were who believed in this stuff. And yet here we get the passages that are, You know, some of the fodder for a sermon like that actually looked back up the sermon and Edwards doesn't even quote this passage. He has hundreds of other passages he can quote. He doesn't have to deal with this. So it's it's a it's an alarming thing to reflect on some of this stuff. When we hear about the terror of falling into the hands of living God, um, you might have thought back to Edwards. And so um, this morning, we're going to have to deal with some of these uncomfortable bits about terror and about the wrath of God um, with what it might mean to lose our faith. And I'm going to attempt to shed light on these difficulties. And who knows if I'll succeed? I probably won't. Uh, but we'll get to look at each other in the process. Uh, before I start, there's a couple things to say about the book of Hebrews. Um, I have been reading the Bible for almost all my life, and I've been teaching it formally for almost 15 years. And in that time, I would say that there is no more difficult book for me to teach than Hebrews. I think this is hands down the most difficult book in the Bible. And more than any other text, I get the feeling that I'm encountering a mind that is ancient and doesn't think or logic like I think or logic. And um, how the author of Hebrews approaches questions is not how I approach questions. And so um, I'm aware of that difference and it makes me very wary of interpreting it. Um, Whatever is written, it may not quite mean what we think it means. And all that to say, I'm suspicious of anyone who claims to fully understand the book of Hebrews. Uh, which means you should be suspicious of everything I say this morning as well. Um, So that's fine. I'm not saying that to say I have authority. I'm saying that to say, "Mm, I've got questions. Some really, really brief background, of course, the book is anonymous. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews Um, and that's okay. It's in our earliest Bibles. And so from the earliest time of the church, it's been recognized as authoritative. Some people think it might've been a sermon that was preached. So imagine this is one whole 13 chapter sermon. And, and you get all this dense stuff in one Sunday gathering, and that's pretty amazing. Um, it is a long sermon, Phil. And um, there's, um, uh, there's lots of speculation on who might have written it. Um, some people think it might have been Paul. It's probably most likely not Paul. Um, for what it's worth, my money might be on Apollos from the early text. Apollos is this, you know, he's this Greek convert. He doesn't think like us. He's an interesting guy. You know, it doesn't matter because uh, we just don't know. We won't find out until we get to glory. So what are we going to do with a passage like this, like especially the one that, that thank you, Ben, again, for reading so nicely? Um, and maybe the first thing to do is to notice that it seems to fall into two complementary halves. So we have a part A and a part B. And this first half focuses on our access to God's temple. Uh, And that's been the building argument of the book of Hebrews, the glory of the work of Christ, the importance of continuing in our faith, and the value of meeting together for encouragement. That seems to be part A. And then the second half, part B, focuses on the danger of taking Christ's work for granted, Uh, what it might look like to lose our faith, and then the nature of the God with whom we've made this bargain for salvation, and thinking about that nature. Now the most important thing in reading a passage like this, it seems to me, is to keep both halves together. In other words, we've got these two verses, 10:19 and 10:31, that bring the beginning and the end. 10:19 says, "Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus," and then he goes on. And 10:31 says, "It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God." It seems to me we have to read 19 with 31 in mind, and 31 with 19 in mind. In other words. It's not so terrifying if we hold to the confidence that it's rooted in the blood of Jesus. Um, but if we spit in the blood of Jesus, maybe we should expect some serious problems. Um, this is, we, these have to be pulled together. And actually, um, the, the togetherness of this goes on, we didn't read this passage, but verse 39, uh, brings them together again as well. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith in the persevering of the soul. So the author of Hebrews has made explicit that these two things are meant to go together. And so um, we've got to keep, as is always the case with some of the difficult teachings of the Bible, we have to keep the bigger picture in mind. Um, We can't just take one difficult bit and then boost that and make it everything. But we'll come back to that in a minute. So that I think is the basic structure of the passage. There's two halves, they have to be held together. There is, as always, far too much to say about what's in it. So I'm not even going to try to say all of it. Um, but I'm going to do a few things. I'm going to highlight one key element from the first half, uh, something I'm going to call the two arms of faith. We'll explain that in a minute. I'll talk about two difficulties in the second half, so the terror of God and the question of losing our faith. And then I'm going to finish with some comments on what it means to have community during a time of COVID. That's probably still too much. And I'm going to do some hand-waving and, you know, just fly through some things. You're going to have lots of unanswered questions. The hand-waving was, thank you, Joel, for waving back to the hand-waving. That was nice. I appreciated that. (coughs) So let's uh, let's begin with what I'm calling the two arms of faith. So this is this first half of the passage. If you look again at these opening verses, the kind of happy good news part about Jesus' work, I think you'll see with me that there are two actions that the author of Hebrews challenges us to perform. (coughs) So the first is in verses 22 and three, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. This seems to me to be the first action, which is to draw near to the Christ who has saved you. So hold fast to the faith, cling to the person of Christ. That's action one that we've been recommended. And the second action is in verses 24 and 5. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. This is the second action, which is to encourage one another, to do this business of following Christ together, to live the life of faith in community. So these two actions are what I mean by this little thing about those two arms of faith. Um, If you will, one arm is reaching forward to cling on to the person of Christ, Uh, This is the arm, if you will, of personal faith. Um, The other arm reaches kind of sideways and laterally to community. This is the arm of our communal faith, of our doing it together. Now, where we get into trouble is that I think it is just too easy for us to believe that the arms can be separated. That personal faith can exist without corporate faith. I mean, if we believe this, that personal faith exists without corporate faith, this is the kind of like me and my Bible religion. Like, I've got my Bible. I don't need any of you bozos. And I can make this stuff work on my own. This is the people who say stupid things like, I love Jesus, but not the church. Like, Jesus died for the church. That's kind of a dumb sentiment to hold. I'm sorry if any of you have said that in your lives. I think the idea is dumb. I don't think you are dumb. You're just undereducated. Um, (laughs) We've got to deal with things like... um, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I'm sorry, if you're a Christian, you are church. That's what you are. You're in the body of Christ. And not only are you refusing to meet as a denial of that reality of being church, but you're refusing your responsibility to encourage and uplift other Christians in that. Um, That's really bad. We can't do that. So, okay, you can't have personal faith without communal faith. On the other hand, I think there are people who, who kind of believe that their corporate actions serve as a substitute for personal faith. I don't need to read the Bible. I can listen to sermons. Um, I don't need to pray and worship on my own. I don't like it very much. It's much more fun to be in the group. Um, I don't need to have a private devotional life. Public worship feels much better uh, to me. And there, there there's sorts of excuses where we can use the community as a crib, uh, as a cheat, for not having a robust personal faith as well. Now, as far as the author of Hebrews is concerned, and me with him for what it's worth, these have to go together. They can't be separated. Um, If you call yourself a Christian, you've got to flex both arms of faith, private devotion as well as community life. Uh, And this seems to be intrinsic to how faith works. Now, in turn, the two arms function together, frame our understanding of a verse like verse 25, where we instructed not to forsake meeting together. So why would this be so important? Well, it seems to me that the easiest and most straightforward way to perform both actions, to flex both your personal faith and your corporate faith, is to encourage one another in community. This is the place where we get to do it. It's through meeting together regularly. And if that's the case, then I think it illuminates further the, the kind of threatening second half of the passage, which means that abandoning community means abandoning Christ. It means the loss of both personal and corporate faith It also helps us to maybe illuminate the chilling conclusion that after all, if you remove yourself from Christ's magnificent gift, what possibility remains for you? And the answer appears to be the terror of God. So um, with that kind of opening two arms of faith, which we're going to come back to later, let's take some time to think about the terror of God. Once again, verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And this follows on words of like vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Um, and, and I will repay and, you know, these kind of ominous quotes on the testimony of two or three witnesses, you'll be put to death, um, which I'm sorry, pet peeve, as an aside, two or three witnesses you will put to death. This is the meaning and Jesus says whenever two or three are gathered in my name, you're gathering as witnesses to kick someone out of the church. It's not a quorum for the Holy Spirit. Um, it's, it's a measure. Okay, I'll stop there. Never mind. We're not in it. Okay. So for many people, this is the more nerve-wracking verse of the Bible. Um, one of the more nerve-wracking that it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands. It associates easy, of course, with God's wrath, with it of judgment and hell and hellfire and of demons and brimstone and all that stuff that we might think about. This is the real sinners in the hands of an angry God territory. So what do we do with an idea like the terror of God? Well, I've got three options. There may be more, but these are the three I came up with. The first two are bad. The third's the one I think we should do. So bad option one, we can fixate on the terror of God. We can fixate on it, right? We can just focus on it. We can highlight it. Um, We can really emphasize the awesomeness of God and the puniness of me, the goodness of God and the badness of me, the justice of God and how wicked I am. And we can highlight these things uh, as much as possible. This gives birth to something that sometimes we call worm theology. I don't know if you guys have encountered worm theology, but there's a lot of people who seem to think that the the more badly I talk about myself, the more happy God is. Or like the more I demean myself as a human creature, the greater God looks. And so I try to magnify God by beating up me. And I think this is fixating on the terror of God. we can fixate it, on it by by living in fear of wronging him. I mean, this is the real like lightning bolts from the heavens stuff. Like, oh no, God's you know focused on every last thought that I have and that wicked thought. And oh no, I just judged. I mean, Alistair talked about looking at jumpers at this conference, but let's face it, you're going to judge people's appearance, right? And you're going to look at their maybe maybe their jumper doesn't match, and maybe they didn't maybe they missed a bit of spinach in their teeth, and you think, oh, they should have done better at that. And then you have to look up because, oh, no, I have to live in the terror of God. Am I going to get lightning bolted at this moment? And that's another way to fixate on the terror of God. And another way that we do it, and this is, this is something perhaps you've experienced, is that the terror of God is really one of the easiest ways to manipulate people. We even have a phrase, I will put the fear of God in you, which means I will threaten you with various and sundry um, punishments for not obeying me in these ways. Uh, But it's all too easy to do with, I mean, not just kids, but adults as well. If you don't come to church, do you really love God? Um, If you aren't serving in this way, um, what's the state of your salvation? These are fear of God things. It's manipulative. And all these come from fixating on the terror of God. Okay, that's option one. I think that's bad. Option two, which is also bad, is that we could just simply object to it. Say, "I, I don't like this. And we can do this, of course, first of all, by avoiding reading these passages, which is admittedly what we largely do today. If you think about it, there aren't many sermons on hell these days. And the people who do preach sermons on hell are not people we are keen to be associated with. Uh, We don't think to ourselves, yeah, I want to go to a church that talks a lot about hell and hellfire and brimstone. Let's get, that's good stuff, right? That doesn't feel devotionally satisfying. Uh, We're much happier to focus on, say, God's love. And that's the objection I think we're most likely to make when we hear about the terror or wrath of God. We hear, but God is love, right? Now, I mean, there's a whole sermon in this that I won't preach about what what we mean when we say God is love. Like, who gets to define love? Is it my idea of love that then I just boost up to God and say, I think this way about love. God should be like me. Is it that we think of God as being like like a supremely kind of grandfatherly and benign and kindly gentleman who sits and chuckles at the foibles of his children. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Oh, they're so silly. I'm loving, right? And I I think we've got some distortions in our ideas of what love is. But maybe most importantly is that we have to remember that God is love, but he's also good, and he's also just. And being good and just means um, having other responses toward things like certain evils. Because God is love, does that mean he shouldn't be angry at things like child working at child slavery. Should God be angry at child slavery? And if you think maybe the answer might be yes uh, on your level, maybe it should be yes on God's level too. Like there are things worth being angry about, especially if you're loving. Um, uh, George MacDonald in one of his prayers has this phrase, it's great, it's all hyphenated. He says, my love made angry God. I think that's something to keep in mind, that love is the source of what makes God angry for this stuff. Anyway, I'm not going to talk more about Uh, that at the moment, but simply objecting to it or by warring, uh, setting God's justice and love and mercy against one another in competition is not how we think about God. That's to reduce him to, to powers instead of him being a person. Okay, option three, the one I think we should do is to remember it reverently. We have to remember the terror of God reverently. So what is this terror? Let's talk about it for a minute. I'll give you two examples to help think about it. One example is nice, one example is not so nice. Uh, so let's try and do this. The, the nice example to think about the terror of God is that it's not unlike the reverence we give to fire. Maybe some of you have come across this before as an example. Uh, fire is extremely powerful. It can be all-consuming. It can sweep through your house really quickly and wipe everything out. Um, we don't play with fire. We discipline those who do play with fire. And throughout, we don't abuse fire. We we reverence fire, even though we use it and make use of its power. Now there's some hint of something like this when we approach God. That approaching God is he's the source of life and goodness, but he's also, he's not safe. Uh, he's, he's dangerous. I mean, we need to reverence um, the kind of implicit danger in the Godhead. And that's a reverence of the terror of God. Just recognizing that, hang on, he's, he's, there's something significant here that we need to be careful about. That's the first one. That's the nice example. The less nice example is this, that the terror of God is in part, the acknowledgement of the utter difference between us and him. It's recognizing that he is God and I am not God, that he is the source of life and that I am utterly and completely dependent on him. And that dependence is discomforting because we think we're independent. Um, It's recognizing that he does in fact know everything and that I am utterly pea-brained in his presence, that there is something of like, I don't know anything compared to him. And not only does he know everything, and this is where it gets uncomfortable, one day when I stand before his courts, every thought and motive of my heart will be known before him. We all present ourselves as, we all give ourselves a pass on things, but like every single judgment and thought and motive for everything I did, what you wanted was this, Jeremy. He will know those things, and I will be exposed And that exposure is itself a terrifying thought. Maybe put it this way, on on one day, we will all stand naked souls before the perfectly knowing gaze of an infinitely powerful being. And if that doesn't terrify you a little bit, I think you're living in denial. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is why we cling to the sacrifice of Christ, because without that, we're done. Uh, But it's worth remembering who we're dealing with. And I think that's part of what the author of Hebrews wants us to know. Again, how are we going to live with this terror, which could be crippling? What a surprise. The author of Hebrews has told us we do this business of clinging to the sacrifice of Christ. And so in the partial knowledge of the terror of God, we cling to confidence in the sacrifice of Christ. This is why we got this um, wonderful song about this this Christ, the solid rock. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Uh, Okay. I got nothing but jesus none of you have nothing but well hopefully none of you have nothing but jesus and if you do have something other than jesus get rid of it uh he's it for us okay so now that i've completely solved the question of the terror of god for all of you let's move on to the other question of losing our faith um this is a long-standing debate on whether or not you can lose your faith is it possible can you undo your christianity um i i remember with some mirth uh, some years ago there was a there was an atheist church I don't know if you saw this in the news there was an atheist church I think they were meeting in New York City and they had like inverted rituals they would do like an unbaptism with a blow dryer you'd come forward and they'd like blow dry off the the, the baptism from you and I and I hate I'm sorry that I feel this ironic mirth about it but in the end I think they ended up with a church split <laughs> and they had to, anyway it didn't last I think that's I'm sorry that it's so funny to me but you can't anyway Let's not linger on our shade and froida. Um For some people, the answer to this question is obvious. Of course you can lose your faith. Why else does the Bible talk about people walking away and losing their faith? Um, this perspective is ratified by experience. All of us know some people who've, who've walked away from Christianity. And, of course, Hebrews 10 seems to think you can lose it as well. For other people, the question is not also obvious. Of course you can't lose your faith. How can a human be stronger than God? And you know what? This is right. If you couldn't save yourself, how can you unsave yourself? And are you really going to undo God's power? And there's all sorts of interesting things about, um, you know, you live a Christian life for 50 or 60 years and you come to the end of your life and you get sick uh, with something like dementia and you start to lose it. And you say all sorts of horrible things about your family and about your faith and you deny Jesus. Does God judge you by the last year of your life? Um, and not in light of the whole of your life. I'm inclined to think that God looks at the whole, in as much as He doesn't look at like my one particular sin. He he looks at well, Jeremy is covered by the blood of Jesus. And yeah, but he screwed up this one time. Therefore, this one time invalidates all of it. I don't think that's the case. And so there's some things here to think about. Now, there's if some of you have Calvinist experience, there's a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints that says that one of the signs that you are Christian is the fact that you persevere. Um, which means that if people fall away, they were never really Christian. So there's a kind of convenient patch um, on on the goings-on. Once again, this is too complex, far too complex for me to treat fairly. So I'm going to do something I never do, and I'm just going to tell you what I think, all right? And that's, I'm not even going to give you the theology for it. (laughs) No, Phil, no. Um, One and two, Um, if we can lose our faith, it seems to me that loss of faith means loss of one of the two arms of faith leading to one of the other. In other words, um, you've lost private devotion that's led to walking away from community, or you've lost community that leads to the loss of private devotion. These things seem to me almost always tied together. Um, there's no faith that's not composed of both elements. And sometimes when people say they're losing their faith, what they mean is they're losing one to the other. They stop going to church and now they're losing private devotion and they're like oh I don't feel close to Jesus anymore well you stopped going to church Um, or they um, it can work in both ways I think that's kind of what's going on Um, and then speaking in the broadest theological sense I'm not entirely sure that we can lose our faith I'm not sure that it's possible but it seems to me that we've got to live as if we could lose it I'll say that again I'm not entirely sure we can lose it I'm not sure that we're more powerful than God in these ways but I do think that we have to live as if we could lose it. And that means that reverencing the God of power and might who saved us means acknowledging um, that there remains an accounting for our lives. We do still stand in judgment and we do still receive judgment for the things we've done. Uh, Receiving Christ doesn't mean getting a pass on judgment. It just means you get a a happy verdict in judgment, but you're still gonna have to answer for the things you've done in the body at some point. Even with the salvation of Christ, you're covered, you've got confidence, but you're, you're gonna have to and so receiving Christ is never an excuse for misbehavior. Okay, let's come to kind of the closing stuff. Well, let's talk about um, what it means to have faith in a time like COVID. So more specifically, how are we going to obey a verse like Hebrews 10, 25, which tells us not to forsake meeting when our government, not to mention our love for neighbor, forbids it? And I, I want to be clear that love for neighbor trumps the mandates of our government in this not meeting together as a function of loving for one another and for your families and for your extended families this is not this is not living in fear this is this is care this is i think i don't know why there aren't more masks that say i'm wearing this mask because i love you like that seems like the kind of thing that that we should be doing okay that's soapbox done Um, the question can be more precise about this how are we going to exercise both arms of faith when one arm is essentially tied and I think that's a really key question if we need personal faith and community faith to thrive how do we thrive when we have access only to personal faith and i've got two options and this wraps us up in just a minute option one is to strengthen the arm that you have strengthen the arm you do have access to this is a season for as long as it goes and who knows how much longer it's going to last it's going to be a season of personal faith a time for private bible reading private prayer private worship, other private rituals as you see fit. And we've got to do these things on our own or with our families because we cannot rely on the community to encourage them or even replace them at this time. And so if you've not had a strong personal faith, now's the time to get that muscle in shape or begin to do it. Now there's problem of course, is that if you weren't working on private devotion before the pandemic began, I doubt highly that the structurelessness of this time has been an asset. I don't I mean, I don't I know almost nobody who's particularly happy with their their exercise regime and their sleep schedule and the things that are going on. Like it's a mess. It's a difficult time to establish rituals. If you didn't have some of them already, it's going to be hard to jumpstart them now. So I want to encourage you, if you're recognizing these difficulties to start very small, read a little, pray a little, worship a little. Establish some rituals that you can repeat on a daily basis. If you miss a day, don't try to make up for it. This isn't homework. Um, you're not being graded. God's not keeping tabs. He's not saying, uh, "Joel Day, you didn't do your devotions today. I'm sorry. Lightning bolts tomorrow." Like this is not. This is the terror. This is the wrong kind of terror of God that's going on. Um, we're just. I'm. I'm trying. It's like an exercise regimen. You're going to do it because it's good for your soul to do it. Um. You might attend, if you want some encouragement, to the opening chapter of John's Revelation. John is in exile. He's on Patmos. He's away from the community arm of faith. There's no more vivid example of this. And it says that on the Lord's day, he was in the spirit. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I know what he means by that. I have no idea quite what he means by being in the spirit on the Lord's day. But if I could know what that means, I think that would be of immense benefit to my life right now. If I could know how to be in the spirit on the Lord's day on my own in a kind of exile, um, I would I would transmit that to all of you immediately so that you could benefit from it as well. OK, that's number one. You've got to flex the arm you do have. And number two, um, it's time for some self-reflection, I think, and reflection on the nature of community. Now, the very fact that we can't rely on it right now means we can think in some fresh ways about it. And if there are two arms of faith then i fear that some of us may be realizing that we've over um, we've relied over much on community to be our faith and that may be uncomfortable um, we've relied on the good feelings we to get together of being together of talking of hugging of eating donuts in each other's presence um, there are good feelings that come from those things and maybe we thought those those good feelings were what it meant to be church and they're not quite they can serve it but they're not the same. Or Um, we've relied on the kind of euphoria of public worship as a group to connect to God. We think that that euphoria is church and it's not quite church either. It's an asset, but it's not the thing. This is maybe a a more precise criticism in, in some place like the vineyard, more generally, where the experience of worship is highlighted as one of the key features that it's one of the key things we offer to the church world. And we're deprived of that. And so it gives us a chance to think, well, what, what is it that we're really doing? I don't say that with with cruel criticism, I just think it's a place that we should perhaps acknowledge. Um, It's just possible that one of the lessons we are being led to learn in this season is how it is that we've made idols of the feelings of togetherness and idols of our forms of public worship. And so we get to reflect on those things. Now we are supposed to have a longing to be together. And I find the voices of the people who are a little more paranoid and alarmist, people who are saying things like, Worship is a human right. We have to get together. And I, I kind of find those voices troubling. Like, I've not done this, and I, I won't do it, but I want to ask them about their private devotional lives. Are you maybe over-relying on the community to to flex this other arm for you? What's going on in your in your personal private life? So I've not said that, and I don't think I will, because I, I'm not needlessly antagonistic, despite what Jesse might think. So um, additionally, a season like this one helps us to reflect on how inadequate are our means of digital communication. This probably should be its own sermon, so I'm sorry to drop it at the end. Um, But for those of you who are my age and older, we've witnessed this progressive digitization in the world. I mean, when I was a kid, the phone was attached to the wall by a wire, and then you got a longer wire. And that was really exciting because you could walk in a long way. And then it was like had like the radio antenna. You could walk anywhere, um, and you'd pick up other people's phone conversations through it. And then there were cell phones, but they were the size of car batteries and almost as heavy. And you know, no one had them. And then cell phones got smaller, and texting occurred. And then the Nokia phone came out, and they're still operating, which is amazing, after all these years. And and then and then like texting led to then there was like the internet, and there were like chat rooms and that was bizarre. And then there was things like messenger and then there's like data oversaturation. And finally we have Zoom and now this phenomenon called Zoom fatigue. Um, And this is interesting to kind of have watched this progression because with this progression for those of you who are my age and and older and have witnessed this, um, there's been a progressive frustration that we used to sit together and we could ring each other's doorbells and talk and then like the emergence of increasing technology has meant that there's been a decrease in connectivity that now we're together in rooms, but we're looking at our phones, our cell phones. And now um, instead of phone conversations, we're texting. And now when the phone rings, I know, I know those of you who are younger experience this, but there's real anxiety when the phone rings, you don't want to answer it because what might happen? And that a texted message is safer because you can control the outcomes. Um, and so we are now at this place where, where we are oversaturated with information. And I think we've realized in the last year just how, although we're at the apex of human connectivity in terms of our digital powers, we've never been higher as a, cult, as a society. We've never felt more isolated and alone. And I think that's something we need, we've got to reflect on, because if the church is going to make a difference, our difference has to come at this point. And so when we are free to come back together, what are we going to do differently? How are we going to be a different kind of community to challenge some of this dissipation and this loss in the sense that we are being ripped apart? Um, what does it mean to be together, to call one another, to visit? Um, there are some fresh things. I don't have solutions, but I, I sense the problem. And I sense that if we're faithful, we can patch these things in some surprising ways. All right, so that's it for this morning. We've got this awkward passage with these two halves. We've got to hold the halves together—the good and the bad. Uh, we've got two arms of faith: our personal lives with Jesus and our 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 collective lives as, as a as a family. We've got this awkward stuff, and we do have to think about the wrath and terror of God, as well as the fact that we can—we have to live like we can lose our faith, whether or not we can lose it. Um, and that in this season, while we can't be together, we've got to flex. Flex our personal faith as best we can and look forward to a time when in a new way we can encourage one another side by side. So I feel like this is a bit of a wandering sermon this morning. Sorry about that. It's the best I've got today. Uh, But bless you all very much uh, in the coming weeks, in this coming year. And um, I will hand it back to Alistair and Lucy now for prayer and reflection.